Well, I invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6 this morning. A sort of three-part series through Revelation 12 and Christmas Eve. We'll look at a passage in one of the Gospels. We're going to be looking at Christmas in heaven or Christmas from heaven's perspective. Today, Eve's baby wins. Next week, Satan thrown down. And then the church persecuted yet protected, all a result of Christmas. So Revelation chapter 12 at verse 1, and before we read it and look at it, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great behind-the-scenes look at what Christmas is all about in heaven, what took place. And we ask as we look at these significant realities that you would impress them upon our hearts and minds that we would learn things we haven't known or be reminded of great truths we already know, and that we'd be a people who are indeed changed and made more like your son. So make your name great in our midst now as we take a look at this passage, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen. Revelation 12 at verse 1, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. So beloved congregation of hope and everyone with us here uh, this morning, I feel like me, you really enjoy good plays. I love going to a great play. You get to see uh, on stage a drama enacted out and actors and actresses uh, playing a part that they've spent a lot of time learning. But what all the actors and actresses well know, along with all the stagehands, is that the play is really just one little snippet, one little portrayal of months and sometimes years worth of work. Actors and actresses have to memorize their lines for months. The stagehands are backstage building and building and building the different sets. And finally, all these hundreds or thousands of hours of work comes to fruition in about one or two or maybe three hours of a play, which everybody gets to sit back and enjoy. And Revelation 12 is sort of like that. On the pages of the gospel, we see the coming of Jesus Christ. We see what's going on, but Revelation 12 sort of gives us a behind-the-scenes picture of what's going on in heaven. Yet we see, Lord, uh, your earthly coming. We get that. It was amazing, incredible. But the Lord in Revelation 12 sort of pulls back the curtain so we can see what's taking place in significant realities in heaven. And it's a really delightful, incredible picture. This morning, I want us to see just three things. We're going to focus on the characters, the woman, the dragon, the child. And then we'll look at a few concluding things. So as we look at this passage, I want to begin where the Apostle John, where the Holy Spirit begins in verse 1 with the woman. 
A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Now the woman is, I'm just going to say this from the beginning and then walk you through it. The woman is the Old Testament Israel, and we'll find out that she also encompasses, when she's in the wilderness, uh, the new covenant community. But for now, we're going to begin with the old covenant community. The woman is a picture of the Old Testament Israelites, which shouldn't come as a surprise to us. Isaiah 54, 5, we're told, Your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. He has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. In Ephesians 5, the church is called the bride of Christ. So it shouldn't take us uh, by surprise that we're saying that this woman is the old covenant people of Israel. We're told about this woman. She was clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars. Now this is imagery taken straight out of Genesis 37, verse 9, Joseph's dream. Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me, Joseph reported. His father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I, he's the sun, and your mother, the moon, and your brothers, there's the 11 stars, indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And Jacob interpreted that rightly. In Joseph's dream, the sun, moon, 11 stars were to bow down to Joseph. And Jacob tells us again that he's the sun, that his wife's the moon, and the 11 stars are Joseph's brother, the tribes of Israel. So the woman here is one who is described using Old Testament imagery, which spoke of the Old Testament people of God, particularly the tribes, the sons of Jacob. And we're told that the woman is crowned, which means she reigns and thus shares in Christ's reign. And so when you examine those who are crowns in Revelation 2.10, chapter 3.11, and chapter 4, verse 4, the ones wearing crowns are believers who have conquered. So she represents faithful believers, true believers. There are 12 stars on her crown, and it's often in Revelation when the number 12 is used, it refers to the 12 tribes of Israel or the 12 apostles. So the woman is first a picture of the Old Testament covenant community. We're told in verse 2 that she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. So the woman was pregnant. She was in the process of giving birth. Now, at first glance, we might immediately think of the Virgin Mary here, right? Of course. We, I mean, everyone who can read uh, looks at this and says, that sounds almost identical to Mary. And indeed, the child who is, birth, who is birthed is indeed the Lord Jesus Christ. But the woman described as bigger than Mary. And Mary is not described as someone who fled into the wilderness where God protects her for three and a half years. Although Mary did flee to Egypt with Joseph, right at the behest of the angel, that is indeed true to flee Herod's persecution and his attempt on Jesus' life. But let me connect some of this imagery of the woman so that it hopefully makes a little bit of sense. If you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve sinned, God cursed the serpent, the devil, with these words. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So from the Garden of Eden on, there has been this constant war, this battle, this enmity between the woman and the devil, and particularly between the woman's child and all those who belong to the devil. Constant war. And the goal of the devil is to destroy the seed of the woman. If Satan can destroy the children of Eve, he wins. And we might think Satan has no chance. This shouldn't even be a story. But the Old Testament is about this drama unfolding. In fact, very early on in the Old Testament, we can see that Satan is a formidable foe. He is nowhere near as strong or as powerful or as wise as God, but Satan is a fallen angel and a mighty created being, and he's not nothing. He's an enemy of God and his people, and he's a major force to be reckoned with. In fact, in Genesis 7, 
The children of Eve were down to how many souls in the ark? <laughs> Eight. Satan's not nothing. Genesis 12, they were seemingly down to one man in Abram. Two of the matriarchs, Sarah and Rebekah, were both barren until the Lord opened their wombs. So beloved, this is a battle. This is a real battle that you're watching going on between the seed of Eve, the children of promise, the, the, the Christ who will come, and the children of the devil. The war is real. It's been going on ever since the Garden of Eden. Satan is trying to wipe out the line of Christ, which God promised would come from Eve. And on numerous occasions, he's come close. And then in the New Testament, the one who gives birth to the child, the Messiah, whom the red dragon tries to devour and destroy is Mary, a woman. So the woman depicted in Revelation 12.1 is Eve, Old Testament, Israel, and Mary all rolled into one. But it's the old covenant community, the line of Christ, giving birth to their Messiah. He's finally arrived. The one we all hoped would come, the one God promised would come, has finally come into the world. So it's the old covenant people who are viewed here. Well, that's the woman. Now we have the dragon, verse 3. Another sign appeared in heaven. Remember, John's seeing these things go on before him. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. <laughs> this is some pretty powerful imagery. I realize there are people who say, when Revelation, take everything literally, well, Satan is not a great red dragon. He's a spirit. He can influence things, obviously. But we take things literarily. There are images here which are meant to evoke uh, emotions, which are meant to cause us to think, wow, this is indeed a big battle going on, and this is one of those images. The color red is the, the word for fiery red, or red is in flame red, not blood red. And so threatening and angry is how this dragon is depicted, ready to pounce. We're told the dragon is, the dragon is great, just large and significant, just a massive mega dragon. The dragon had seven heads and ten horns, which reminds us of the beasts in Daniel 7, one of which had four heads and another which had ten horns. Heads are often manifestations of power, so Satan here is depicted as manifesting his power and his tyranny through several different means upon the earth, oftentimes through rulers, wicked rulers. The ten horns are referred to as power. Horns in the Bible are a symbol of power, so what is depicted here as Satan is powerful. And then seven diadems think crowns worn by kings. The red dragon had seven heads, and on each head was a crown. Now, what is interesting is that if you flip over to Revelation 19, 12, Jesus is portrayed with many diadems on his head. So Satan portrays himself as a counterfeit ruler through earthly kings. He parades himself as the one in charge. We know he's actually not the one in charge. Behind every single wicked ruler on the earth is none other than Satan himself. He manifests his power through a lot of kings, a lot of those who reign. And it's him seeking to give the world the impression, especially God's people, that Satan's in control and not God. Or to put it another way, Satan is in direct competition with the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the king. Satan is doing everything in his power to be the king and to dethrone King Jesus. If Jesus were an athlete, Satan would seek to become a better athlete. If Jesus were a musician, Satan would seek to become a better musician. Jesus is a king. 
So Satan seeks to reign and rule upon the earth, usurping Jesus Christ's rule. That's a picture of the dragon with his heads and the crowns and the ten horns. And it should come as no surprise to us that Satan is presented as a ruler of sorts. Ephesians tells us as much. Ephesians 2.2, 2, the prince of the power of the air is what he's called. Ephesians 6.12, we wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And Jesus in John 12.31 said, he called Satan the ruler of this world. Satan has real power. He has real influence. He really is a force and an enemy to be reckoned with. And in verse 4, we're told that his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. Again, this is a portrait taken almost identically out of Daniel 8, verse 10. Let me read it for you. The little horn grew great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. The little horn described in Daniel chapter 8 is Antiochus Epiphanes IV. The stars described in Daniel 8 are the Israelites, the people of God, who are being trampled on and persecuted by Antiochus. One commentator wrote, The host and stars are symbols used in the Old Testament for angels, kings, and leaders, or the people of God at large. The terms stars of heaven, Genesis 12.3 and Genesis 15.5, and the hosts of the Lord, Exodus 12.41, are at times used of God's people in general. So what is the point of this phrase in Revelation 12.4? The devil is busy trampling upon God's chosen people who are compared to stars. No matter the era, no matter the time period, the devil uses earthly rulers to throw down and persecute and trample upon believers. This is what the devil does. He goes after God's people, doing whatever he can to trample upon them and disrupt God's order in their lives. Now, I want us just to consider one thing before we move to the child. Satan has great power. He's way more powerful than you and I are. I want us to catch that. If it was you and me and 10,000 believers or in a room in our own strength, and we had one foe, Satan, he would win. This is a great red dragon. There is no chance that we stand if we were to do battle against him. A magnificent, mighty foe. And now we look at the child. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. This is where the imagery gets pointed and powerful. The woman, Old Testament Israel here, is depicted as a woman in labor giving birth in the hospital bed. And instead of a doctor walking through the door to help, a big, fiery, wicked, hungry dragon walks into the delivery room ready to eat the child. That's what's going on in this passage. It's gross, it's sick, it's scary, and that's the point. <laughs> this person's about ready to give birth the Messiah is coming in the world and you've got this big red dragon ready to eat the kid as soon as the child is born. Now I ask you one very simple question, who's going to win that battle? If you pit a child against a fiery dragon, who will be victorious? The dragon will, quite easily. There is no hope for this child. If you look at this imagery, this is not a great start to Christmas. <laughs> this is not a great start to the gospel. And why is the dragon bent on devouring the child? Because the dragon knows something. This child's born into the world to destroy the dragon. 
Satan is not omniscient. He does not know everything. He's not omnipresent. He cannot be everywhere like our God can. But Satan does know something. God told him that promise directly to him. I'm putting enmity between you and that woman. And she's going to have a seed someday that is going to come and bruise your head. It's going to crush your head. And Satan knows this. So Satan is not omniscient. He does not know everything. But he's smart enough to remember that God cursed him in the Garden of Eden. And that curse had been hanging over his head for thousands of years. The message that a child of Eve would crush his head so that when the Christ is born, Satan is hell-bent on destroying him. It's full on. This is war, beloved. When Jesus came into the world, Christmas, it means war. And it's God declaring war. It's God saying, Satan, I told you this is going to happen, and I'm here. We're, we're going at it. The time for you to do what you're doing is coming to a close. Satan could annihilate you and me if it was us versus him. Catch the drama. Catch the stakes. Catch the magnitude of what was happening on earth almost 2,000 years ago. This is pure evil trying to destroy any hope of anyone being saved from hell. This is Satan himself seeking to fill hell with God's redeemed. This is Satan trying to topple God's one and only son into the very depths of hell itself. This is bloody. This is life and death. This is a fight to the death. This is a cage match to the death. That's what this is. There's one person isn't making out of this alive. One person is going to be finished off after God and Satan, after their war is finally over. One of them is going to be finished. Now, Satan shows up a few times to destroy Jesus. He tries to devour him. We see this in Jesus' earthly ministry, Matthew 2.16. Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under. He made an attempt. That's Satan seeking to devour Jesus. Matthew 4, Satan tempts Jesus in order to destroy his obedience and righteousness and render his mission void. And Luke 22, 3, maybe some of the most chilling words on the pages of Scripture, Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot. Satan entered him. It's time. It's on. And he tried to ruin and devour the Lord Jesus Christ by bringing him to the cross. Well, so this big red dragon is standing ready to devour the child. And we're told in verse 5 something which doesn't make much earthly sense, but it's what took place. It doesn't make much earthly sense because the male child actually overcame the dragon. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Whoa! And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God. So this male child comes into the world and instead of being devoured by the great red dragon is actually caught up to God and to his throne. The male child is the Lord Jesus Christ, the fruit of the Old Testament people, the one everybody was looking forward to coming. The baby everyone from Eve on had been waiting for and anticipating. I want us to notice a few things about this. Immediately, the thing we are told about Jesus is he's the one who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. That's what Revelation highlights. This male child who is to be born wasn't called Emmanuel here, although he is Emmanuel, but he's called the one who's going to rule all nations with a rod of iron. He's going to break them to pieces. This is how he's going to rule. This is a quote directly from Psalm 2.9, you shall break them with the rod of iron. The point being that this child is most certainly 
Jesus Christ, the Son of God who is enthroned in heaven, and he's got a claim to kingship, which the devil also has. He's got crowns on his heads. So again, this is a battle. We've got a king or a fake king who's got irrigated authority versus the real king, Jesus Christ. Satan has already been depicted as a ruler of nations and as one who controls and uses wicked kings and rulers to bring pain and suffering into the lives of God's people. So when we're told that this son, Jesus, is to rule all the nations, again, we're to see war. And at the heart of the battle is what? What are they fighting over? Ascendancy, but there's something more. What are they fighting over? We'll look at that in the weeks to come. What is the rest of chapter 12 about? Verse 7 on. This battle over the woman, over her offspring, over people. What's at the heart of the battle? The glory of God and the salvation of people. Is Jesus going to win and save people or is Satan going to win and nobody gets saved? That's at the heart of the battle. Satan and Jesus are battling over souls. And we're told that this child who's ruling is caught up to God and to his throne. All of Jesus' entire earthly ministry from his incarnation to his ascension is summarized with caught up to God. What takes four gospel accounts to explain is here explained in just a few words. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now I want to hit on this because it's in the passage. I don't want to spend too much time on it. But the, the wilderness, first of all, is the place where two things happen. When you're in the wilderness, think biblically, historically, uh, from Israelites on. People are tested and tried and suffer in the wilderness. The Israelites in the wilderness, Jesus in the wilderness when he was tempted. People in the wilderness are tested and tried. And secondly, God is there to protect them. God is with them. So when somebody, when this woman's in the wilderness, she is in a place of difficulty, suffering, trial, temptations, hardship, cross-bearing, we might say. But she's also some place where God is. God's nourishing her. He's, he's sustaining her. Literally, he's giving her something to eat. God is making sure that she's able to be sustained. It's a great picture of the church between the ascension of Jesus and his second coming. She's to be nourished. The Lord provides this place so that the church can actually be sustained. The church is being tested and tried, but indeed sustained. And we're told how long, 1,260 days, or if you look at chapters before and after, 42 months, time, times, and half a time, which is one year, two years, and a half a year, three and a half years. They're all pointing to the same thing. Now, this is in direct fulfillment of Daniel 7.25, time, times, and half a time, speaking of Antiochus Epiphanes. I want to highlight this just for a moment. The period of time denoted three and a half years was a period of time that all Jews would have related to. If you just walked around them in Jesus' day and threw out the language of three and a half years, they'd all been like, oh yeah, I know what you're talking about. 167 to 164 B.C., the temple of God is desecrated. Antiochus Epiphanes IV sets up this horrible persecution against the Jews, offering pigs on the altars, desecrating the temple. It was a miserable time of suffering. Up to 100,000 Jews killed. It was real. It was a mess for the Jewish people. And so 1,260 days is that three and a half years time. And it would remind them of what took place when Antiochus Epiphanes IV came in, in an intertestamental period, here's what he did. He spoiled the temple, put a stop to the constant practice of offering a daily sacrifice of expiation for three years and six months. 
Now Antiochus was not satisfied either with his unexpected taking of the city or with its pillage or with the great slaughter he had made there, but being overcome with his violent passions, he compelled the Jews to dissolve the laws of their country, to keep their infants uncircumcised, to sacrifice swine's flesh upon the altar, against which they all opposed themselves, and the most approved among them were put to death. Just a difficult time. And Robert Mounts picks up this reference to that time period and says this regarding its use in Daniel 12, verse 6. The length of the three and a half years derived from Daniel 12, 7 and 7, 25 originally corresponded directly to the period of Jewish suffering under the Syrian despot Antiochus Epiphanes in 167 to 164 BC. But it became a standard symbol for that limited period of time during which evil would be allowed free reign. And so this image conjures up, this length of time conjures up, oh, this is a difficult time. 1,260 days she's in the wilderness, and when does she have to go out into the wilderness? As soon as Jesus is ascended. That's when it begins. As soon as he's caught up, she's in the wilderness. It starts at Jesus' ascension. And the point is this. When you mention three and a half years in polite company, there'd be a lot of squirming among Jewish people, like there would be today if you mentioned the Holocaust, right? Everybody, oh, the, we, we know the Holocaust. You drop that one word and a thousand images come to mind. You drop the length of time, 1,260 days or time, times and half a time, to use the language of Devin, uh, Daniel 7, or three and a half years or 42 months, you drop any of those. And a Jew would have those images conjured up when they were heavily persecuted, went through a lot of suffering. So the 1,260 days refers to a period of time that starts at Christ's ascension when he's caught up to God and the woman flees into the wilderness. And in the words of Dennis Johnson, this time period symbolizes the church's ongoing experience of suffering and safety, bold testimony and bitter trial, alienation in the desert, but nourishment from God from the time of Jesus' ascension to heaven until the trauma that precedes his glorious return. Now, what do we want to do with this? A few things, and we're done. Number one, I want us to understand as we look at these six verses that Satan is at war with God and the war is a real one. We live in a scientific, I guess, world. We're like the average Missourian, the show me state. If I can't see it, if you can't show it to me, it's not real. And what Daniel 12 depicts is actually more reality than what we see. It's more real than what our eyes can behold and our ears can hear and our five senses can take in. If we want to know reality, here's reality. God created a world good. The devil walked into it and has been seeking to destroy the crowns of his creation, human beings, in order to bring glory to himself and topple God. He's been doing it ever since. That's a real war that's going on. And Christmas is the amping up of the war. God revving up the engines, cranking up the tanks and fighter jets and aircraft carriers. Christmas is God firing the shot. It's God firing the first shot. The battle lines have been picked. Everybody's waiting. And God isn't going to sit here in defensive mode. No, he's ready to take out this enemy and he's firing the first shot. Here comes Christmas. My son's coming into the world. And indeed, it's like God landing the troops on Normandy's beach. It's when all the plan, plans made in the past and all the promises to crush Satan and, his, and uh, everything God had 
told he would do and said he would do. It's when it finally began in history. On September 11, 2001, the United States underwent the deadliest terrorist attack on U.S. soil. On that day, then-President George Bush said freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward, and freedom will be defended. Nearly 10 years of planning later, on May 2, 2011, a couple military helicopters took off headed toward Abbottabad, Pakistan, carrying a couple dozen Navy SEALs. The promise, the plans, the anticipation, the intelligence, pretty much of the whole nation's might, a whole nation's might culminated in those two helicopters full of trained warriors. And once they landed, it was on, the fight was on. On one of the first days in all human history, Satan issued the deadliest attack against human beings ever pulled off. On that day, God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. You attacked my creation and I will defend it. More than 4,000 years later, a newlywed couple took off to Bethlehem carrying a baby. The promises, the plans, the anticipation, the goal, all of God's might culminated in the birth of that baby Jesus. And once he was born, it was on. The fight was on. And Jesus won. The text tells us he's enthroned on high. God pulled it off. For those of us who are believers, let me just mention this. Your Lord loves you this much. He fights for you. He entered into war for the sake of your soul. He did not let Satan have his way, but confronted the bully and made promises and made good on his promises in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He fought for you in his coming. He fought for your soul in his obedience. He fought for your soul as he poured himself out to death for our sins. He continues to fight even now for us as our defense lawyer and advocate. John Stuart Mill, 1867, said this, Bad men need nothing more to compass their ends than that good men should look on and do nothing. That quote has come down to us in this paraphrase. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Well, God was unwilling to do nothing. He was unwilling to let the devil triumph. And so he did something. And when Jesus landed on this earth, the Son of God taking on flesh, it was God saying, it's time. Yep, we're going to finish this. We're going to come and accomplish victory over Satan. And the Lord has done this. I don't know of anything more precious than to have somebody say, I'm fighting for you. I don't know what's more precious to the heart of a believer or what could be other than to have God Almighty show, I'm fighting for you. I'm not going to let Satan win. He wants you in hell. I'm taking you to heaven. And my son's going to pull this off. So just sit back and watch and enjoy the show. And I can't wait till you get here. Beloved, God loves you that much. He loves me that much. He loves believers, all believers that much, that he has fought for us and he continues to do it. And for anybody who doesn't know the Lord, there are spiritual realities going on around you which your eyes and your ears and no religion in the world can account for. You're currently on the losing side of the war in unbelief, siding with Satan who is a defeated, desperate foe. And if you continue to walk the path that you're on, you're going to end up on the losing battle, not just of a little battle, lowercase b, but of you're going to end up on the losing side of the war, capital W, and it will matter for the rest of eternity. And so I strongly urge you to get on the right side of the war, to follow King Jesus, to repent and believe in him so that your sins are forgiven. They're all washed away clean and you'll end up victorious in Christ. 
But if you keep following Satan, if you keep rejecting Jesus, just know that you'll be on the losing side and the day will come when you will likely wish that you had actually walked on the winning side. Jesus is the winning side. Let's pray.